So, a few weeks ago, we got to focus on the fact that God created all things, that God even died on the cross, that he came for us, that he made families, that he created us in our image because he loves his glory. So that's a deep theological truth that is sometimes because we are so self-centered in many ways, you hear that truth and it catches you off God. You say, God can't love his glory. He's got to be all about me. Because in Western culture, especially around Boston, it's all about us, right? But we learn that that's a thing that we want. That's a thing we should be excited about. The fact that God loves his glory is a beautiful thing for us because his love, the love between the triune God, the fact that he loves his glory, all things work together for us to create for him to create us in his image so that we could be a love, in a loving relationship. We're, we're worshiping God. He's the highest object of our affection. And we were created to find our greatest joy in adoring him, in loving him, in worshiping him, in making him our everything. So we should be excited that God loves his glory because he created us because he loves his glory. Now there's another facet to that relationship that we don't want to miss. He loves us so deeply. And they're so closely entwined that it's hard to even kind of break that apart. So in your relationship, you love your wife so much, she loves you so much. For those of us who had children, we had children because we know that they would bring us joy. So it started with our joy, but then we had kids and we loved them so ferociously and we loved them so much. That's all tied together. It's hard to break it apart. Today, I want to focus on the fact that Jesus loves us. Not because that should override the fact that God loves his glory, but because that's part of a relationship, and he wants us to know that. What's one of our favorite Bible verses? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What does the cross cry out? That he loves us. And we need to know that because there's so many people in the body of Christ, in this world, that lose hope who are depressed, who are anxious because they don't think that God loves them, that Jesus loves them. He loves us so much that he was willing to take the punishment that was yours to bear. So when I was younger, and I don't even like to tell the story because it's embarrassing, because I like to act a lot tougher than I am, and this bothers me that this happened. When I was 14 years old, I loved basketball. I always played basketball. If there was an outside court to play basketball, I was there, and all my buddies loved playing basketball. But me and one of my other friends, he was about two or three years older than me, was with me, and we were playing basketball on this court. And three other guys came who I knew of. He kind of knew. They were from the, I think I was a freshman in high school. I was 14. And they came. They were 19 years old, and one was 20. Two of them were big dudes, like 19-year-old, 20, big dudes, hitting the gym young. Another dude was a little smaller. He was 20 years old, and I'm playing him in one-on-one. I'm working him a little bit, but I'm talking. My mouth ran too much when I was younger. I talked too much junk. I'd hit a shot on him. I'm saying, you know, whatever I said back then, you can't take this, brother. I didn't realize he was getting aggravated because I was doing this to him in front of his buddies. Big boys on the sideline. All of a sudden, I hit a layup. I don't see it coming. This dude winds up and unloads one right in my face. I'm talking dead in the nose, and he's got a big target to shoot at. 
he hits me dead in the nose. I don't go down. One thing I've learned through the years, I can take a punch. Now one, I'm not talking about five or six. I can take one. He hits me dead in the face, and it totally catches me off guard. I'm 14. This kid's 20 years old. I think I can take him, all right? But I'm looking over the sidelines. I'm saying there's no way, even if I can take him, that these dudes are not going to pummel me. One of the dudes on the sideline had one time, he had a machete in his pants, and I'm not making this stuff up, and brought it to high school just to show it off. So I said, I'm not taking a chance with these dudes. So I was humiliated. I didn't retaliate. And I had a buddy who was with me. And he didn't look like he was going to help the cause. He looked like, I'm saying, I'm not going to get involved in this. So I'm walking home, nose bleeding, swollen. I don't need it any bigger than it is. I'm walking back. And he looks at me as we're walking back. I got punched in the nose. I didn't do anything. I'm 14. This dude's 20. He goes, good thing you didn't do anything because I wasn't jumping in to help you. He said, I wasn't getting beat up on your behalf. And I remember thinking, what kind of friend is that? What kind of friend is that? He wasn't willing taking the beating for me. He wasn't going to get hurt for me. He wasn't going to jump in on behalf. You could see the look in his eyes. It wasn't happening. He wasn't just saying that. He might have not only jumped in, he might have ran the other way. Christ is nothing like that. It's nothing like that. We deserve... And I want you guys to feel this today, and I want to meditate on this. We deserve extreme punishment from the greatest sinner to the least. This punishment that Jesus got across on the cross, all the whipping, all the humiliation, all the beating, every person who spit on him, every part of what he took was meant to be yours. I want you to feel that. Not the murderer down the street. Not the person who's a little worse than you. And we get in these arguments. It's like one trash can fighting with another. Well, that trash can looks like more of a mess. But you're still a trash can. We, me, your pastor, all of us, that was ours to take. And he took every lash on his back and every beating. And we'll get to the cross, but today we're just going to talk about what happened before the cross. And it's intense. He took it so that you did not have to take it. So you did not have to take the beating. And that's the gospel. And I wanted us to meditate on that truth today. And I wanted to allow you to feel the love. Because if someone did that for you, that you could see in your life, jumped in front of you, God beat, God willed, to the point they're unrecognizable and almost dead laying there, bloodied up. Say, that person loves me. How much deeper, how much more powerful, what a greater love that the God-man Jesus, fully God and fully man, did that for us. Let's go to John 19, verse 1. It said, then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. And let's stop right there. Because I didn't want to go long last week, I skipped the end of the last two verses from the text last week. We saw Pilate struggling with the fact, he says, what is truth? Jesus is brought before him. He has a struggle with him. And he ultimately says, I find no guilt in this man. And there was a custom on Passover where Pilate was trying to find a way to get Jesus off of punishment. 
And so he says, I'm going to bring Jesus out there. And the custom was the people could choose one man to set free on Passover. So in Pilate's mind, he's going to choose the most notorious criminal. He's going to bring out the robber, the murderer, the person who some believe was part of the resistance movement against Rome. He's going to bring that guy out, put him next to Jesus. And in his mind, there's no way they're going to choose Barabbas. It would be like today, Jesus is brought out and they bring out Whitey Bulger. They said, there's no way people are going to pick Whitey. Forty murders, intimidating men, women, and children. Horrible criminal. If I bring Whitey Bulger out, and then we have the sinless son of God who they're afraid, you know, is going to mess up some religious people's lives. There's no way they're going to choose Whitey, right? Who do they choose? They choose Whitey. They choose Barabbas. Then, Pilate has to start the process of getting Jesus ready for crucifixion. But even in Pilate's mind, he's saying, possibly, because we see the tension, that if I beat Jesus enough, because this guy can't be a threat, right? Because he just told Pilate, who's part of the empire of Rome, who conquers everyone through violence, he says, my kingdom's not about violence. So Pilate says, this guy's no threat. They don't, they're not even violent. How much of, how can he advance his kingdom if he's not violent? He said, if I beat him enough, if I punish enough, just maybe, you'll see this text, I'll bring him back out and people have mercy, and they'll let him go. So they start with the flogging. I don't know if you guys know what flogging is. When someone got flogged back in those days, so the Jewish put a, people put a, a limit on it. They said 40. You can't exceed that 40 mark. The Romans had no limitations on it. You just whipped them until the gods were happy. So this would look like the Son of God, our Savior, for our sins, having his arms pinned above his body, clothes ripped off, and a man on either side. This isn't even a one-man job. Remember, this is for you. Don't say this happened in the past. This was for someone else. This is for us. They got that whip made of leather, Leather with bone and lead on it. And every time that whip hits the back. And I don't want this to become old to you. I learned this in Sunday school. Today, let's hear this. Every time they're whipping Jesus' back, that bone, that lead is ripping his flesh out. Son of God. And as it's ripping the flesh out, it's getting down to the veins. In many cases, when they were flogged, it would be so bad you could actually see the organs of those who be whipped, you can see their organs because they rip off so much of the flesh. It'll get to the point where it looked like almost ribbons from the flesh on their back. And I just want to read to you what a doctor said flogging would be like so you really get the weight of it because I want us to meditate on it. I don't want to just hear it and pass it. But this is one doctor said what it would have been like for Jesus getting flogged on that day. He said a heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders his backs and his legs. So this isn't just the back. It's his legs, it's his shoulders, and also his back. His whole back of his body just whipped. After the, at first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and the veins of the skin. 
and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels and underlining muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area is unrecognizable mass of torn bleeding tissue. I didn't come here to gross you guys out today. He did that for you. He was bruised for your transgressions. Let's go to verse 2. And the shoulders twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. To be mocked is someone else, something else, ain't it? Some of us went through school and maybe kids made fun of you or maybe your kids are made fun of. I mean, sometimes that hurts even more than the physical trauma of things. They set Jesus up for a mocking like nothing I've ever seen because of who he is. Because he's the son of God. They make up this crown that's from a common plant with thorns and they drive it into his head to mock him as a king. You've got to understand how ironic this is because he is the king of all. And they drive, he drives that crown into his head. And it says they put on a purple robe. And you know from last week, why'd they put the purple robe on him? Because the emperor had the purple robe. Only the emperor could have that, and that would distinguish him as the king, as the ultimate power. And they, they put this robe on him. And not only does he have the crown, but they're driving it in. You see in other gospels, they have a reed, and they're hitting that crown. They're driving that in. He's wearing that robe. He's taking that beating so that you can have peace. Because he loves you. Verse 3. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So please look at this scene with me. He set up with his purple robe and his crown robe and his body, I mean, he's all ripped up. And they're walking up to him and, and some other accounts too of the gospel, they're walking up and they're nailing and then they spit on him. You know how you're supposed to pay a king homage? You either bring him a gift or you'll kiss his ring. They're getting down and they're spitting on him. And as they strike him, they're driving his crown in deeper every time. And what are they crying out? Hail the king of the Jews. This is both to be an insult to Jesus and to be an insult to a nation. And once again, what's crazy about this is you would think the Son of God would come to earth and that we would be singing His praises, right? These soldiers, these guys who are bringing, who are humiliating Jesus should be on the knees exalting the Son of God who came down to earth. They should be really making up a new song, Hail, Hail, King of all. Hail, Hail, the King of creation. Hail, the King who loves us and who came down for us. But they're mocking Him. Spitting on him, striking him, beating him, humiliating him. And when they cry out, hail, hail, king of the Jews, it's to shame him. He took that punishment so that you could be made right with God. Verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out that you may know that I find no guilt on him. So you see Pilate trying to set the stage. They just beat Jesus down. They ripped him apart. They mocked him. He says, if I bring him out now, 
There's no way they're going to cry out, crucify him again. This guy is a poor soul. They can't see him as a threat. They've got to say the punishment is enough. He sets the stage to bring out Jesus. In verse 5, let's read. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now, I hate seeing people humiliated. I think many of us would agree, right? There's nothing worse. I can't stand when people made fun of people. Like, even growing up in high school and grammar school, if someone made fun of someone, I didn't care. I couldn't deal with it. I had to get on the person. You better stop that. I couldn't deal with people making fun of because we don't realize how much it crushes people or shapes their person and their identity when we make fun of people. I would like to see a lot of that wiped out of who we are at Restoration Road. Because many times we say we're just joking, and we're not just joking. We're hurting people, and we're shaping their identities, and we're causing them to have very low self-esteem. Self-esteem. So I say that to say, one of, two of my good buddies, their dad, when they got older, he turned into an alcoholic. I mean, I'm talking every day when work ended. He was like a, a functional alcoholic, so he could make it through those eight hours of work. But right when he got home, he mixed that drink. He drank it to the end, and then he started the day. And it got to the point we'd, we'd have card games, and we'd be out. And anywhere we were, he was tomahawked. I mean, gone. Not even just, man, I'm just enjoying life right now. I'm talking like it was bad. It got to the point one day we were playing cards over at my house one Christmas. It was snowing out. And he just, he had his mixing cup and we, they were leaving the house and he had his, uh, he loved a certain kind of drink. He had the other thing to mix it. And he fell into the snow. And instead of dropping his drink or his thing to mix it with, he shielded his body. And he turned his body to fall in the snow because his treasure was in his arms. And he, he yelled, look at me, I'm making a snow angel. I grew up looking up to this man. He was some of my best buddies, father, and I love him to death still. And what always took me back was my buddies never said stop coming around. Because they were willing to endure the humiliation because they loved their dad that much. And it taught me something. I mean, I'm talking, that's just one scene. I'm talking over years. That happened. We'd be in the middle of softball games. He'd right out, run out into the, the outfield. Like, it was like public stuff. But they loved their dad so much, they were willing to be humiliated because they loved him. How much more did the Son of God, who is sinless, love us? That we, he was willing to be humiliated in this way. Because when I came out of studying this text, I said to myself... I can understand the suffering, right? I can understand he had to suffer because of our sin. But why did he have to be so humiliated? And I'm still working through that. Why did he have to be so humiliated? Why did he allow himself to, them to put the crown on his head and the purple robe and to be dragged to it? Like, I understand the suffering and I know he had to be humiliated and I know that's deep, but I'm still working through why so much humiliation? I hate to be humiliated. But he loved us. He loved you. He loved me. He loves the body of Christ so much that he was willing to be humiliated like that. Um, 
And I tried to work through the scene in my mind of seeing Jesus out there with that purple robe and that crown. And it was hard even to work through, even thinking about giving a human example of my friend. I, I went back and forth even using that because it really doesn't even compare to the Son of God being humiliated like that. So let's hear the response of the crowd as they bring the humiliated Jesus out in verse 6. When the chief of priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. You'd think that maybe there'd be mercy, right? Maybe there'd be pity. Maybe they'd say that enough. But who cried out first? The religious leaders, the chief priests and the officers. They said, no way, that's not enough. We want him dead. That shows you the heart of man. He said, crucify him. So the big theological term I want you guys to learn today, we take these home once in a while, is penal substitutionary atonement. That means that Jesus was put in your place, became the substitute, and was punished on your behalf so that you would not have to be punished. Now, we understand that's awesome now, but I'm telling you in eternity, when you're in God's eternal peaceful kingdom, this doctrine is going to be even more beautiful. You do not have to experience the wrath of hell that Jesus spoke about so many times. Even in this life, we experience so much more grace than we would ever deserve. I don't think anyone would argue that we were all great sinners. And if you're struggling with that point, you're not looking at yourself right. We are all great sinners. And even today, as we come to worship the one and only holy God, we've received more grace than we deserve, that we can even lift our voice in praise. That we have loved ones in our life. That we have a body of Christ. That we have people who care for us and pray for us. That we have the great hope of heaven. That our sins are not only forgiven, but they're forgotten. That they're blotted out. They're totally forgotten and taken away from us. That the righteousness of the pure one, the holy one, the eternal sinless son of God is ours. When God looks at us, he does not see your filthy sin He sees the work of Jesus Christ. You are clean, spotless, holy child of God. He loves you. Unbelievable. And I I just felt as I was preparing this message to encourage myself, encourage you guys, don't give up on people you love who you said they've gone too far. They're not going to repent of their sins. They're not going to be awakened to the truth of the gospel. Don't give up. Because God didn't give up on us. Don't give up. Pray for them. Preach to them. Love them. Care for them. Be patient with them. Don't ever give up because Jesus did not give up on us. You might say, well, I've done enough. They don't deserve it. Let me tell you stuff. If God responded to like that, There would have never been a cross. There would have never been suffering. There would have never been liberation and freedom in the gospel. Don't give up. And I'm talking to myself. 
So most of the time I get up there, I have to preach this so hard to myself that it overflows to you guys. This also practically in our own life. If Jesus got mocked, we're going to get mocked. There's something in us that you think when you get out of high school, so what's the worst thing that can happen in high school? You get made fun of. They making fun of me? What do you think they meant by that? That's the worst thing in our minds, at least in the culture I was part of. If someone thought you weren't cool or hip or you said something stupid or you're goofy or you're immature or your pants were too short, that was the end of the world. My image is shattered. Grammar school, whatever. It doesn't end in high school. I've noticed that. That doesn't end. Sometimes we're still so worried about what people think of us that we're afraid to share the gospel. We're ashamed to sound too hyper-spiritual. We're afraid to say something that might contradict or might be opposed to the view of the majority of culture who says, what if they think I'm one of those Christians? Like I read, what if they're one of those? And I don't know if I share because I'm starting to tell a lot of stories now, so I don't know when I'm doubling it up. But I think this is a fresh story. I shared it in home group. And Natalie knows we talked about what's happened to Natalie. And I figured when you, you know, preach about being persecuted for what you believe in, it's usually that week everyone gets persecuted, right? The Holy Spirit sets it up like that, get made fun of a little bit, stuff happens because the Holy Spirit's in control. He gets down like that. So Natalie goes to work the very next day when we spoke about being persecuted. And um, something came up about our 10-year anniversary of being married. Yes, it happened. We made it through 10 praying for about 60 more, but i got to stop eating like butter and cheese and stuff and I'll make that far, you know? So we started about, talking about marriage. And everyone's grown here, so we're going to talk like grown people. They said if something happened to Joey, or you guys got divorced, you'd be sexually promiscuous again. You'd try out a few people and then get married. And she said, no, I wouldn't. I'm a Christian. That's what I believe. And she said, I've... Yeah, Joey has been, it's been me and Joey the whole time. I got married young, and I believe that it's not only just because I'm married to Joey and he's a pastor, I will not be sexually promiscuous after, if anything, if I died or sin got in there was a divorce. She said, no, because I don't believe in that. And of course you got, and listen, I have a heart for divorced people. I'm not that person condemning them. And we're not casting you out of the church. There's love there. There's hope there. There's grace there. Hear that a thousand million times from me. If you've been divorced, things have happened. The gospel is with you. I'm with you. This church is with you. But in this case, there were two other divorced people in the room who had bad experience with marriages. And they said to her, you don't know. And again, you don't know about marriage. And it seemed ironic to me because she's been married for 10 years and we've had a great marriage. It's been holy. We've been faithful to each other. And it felt funny. It's always the people yelling at you who have experienced the bad things and maybe haven't had the best track record or telling you how marriage should be. Listen, there's people who've been married 60 years. You know a lot more about marriage than me in my first decade. So now they're saying, this is crazy. No, I believe this. But what happened to her is they started looking at her as that Christian. You know that person that took their faith too far? They're taking it too far. They're actually, they're obeying the words of Scripture. They're nuts. 
since they're actually hearing what Jesus said and applying it, that's bananas. Right? People are crazy. Like, that's a little too far, right? What do you mean a little too far? If Jesus said it, that's what I'm supposed to live on. Because he loves me. Not trying, he's, he's trying to keep stuff away from me. Because he wants good things for me. And Natalie came home. And I'm in the shower. And once in a while, she'll pop into the sink. And I don't know if you've been married for a while, but conversations happen sometimes. And she says, I hated that. She said, I can't believe that happened to me. She said, I didn't like it. (laughs) It's not easy to be mocked. It's not easy to be made fun of. But if you're going to follow Jesus, people are going to make fun of you. I was a lot cooler about 16 years ago when my main goal was like in life was for everyone to think I was cool. Now some of my friends are like, that dude's gone too far. You got to be willing to be made fun of. You gotta be willing to be mocked. Get it out there. Tell them where you stand. Tell them what you believe because you love them. And you're not too extreme if you follow Jesus. You're not too extreme if you want to live holy. You're not too extreme if you guard life and you try to live holy in every arena of your life. That's not too extreme. That means that you love God so much that you want to follow His will for your life. And He's gonna bless that. Let me tell you guys. I've got made fun of a lot since I started following Jesus. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. But I've never been happier in my life than when I was willing to be mocked like Jesus was mocked for me. And in closing, I want you guys to meditate on this suffering for you to know how much he loves you. Because Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. What does he want us to do every week? Remember his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. What are a lot of our songs filled with? The fact that he suffered, he was beaten, he died on our behalf. And the good news is he rose again in victory to defeat suffering, death, the penalty of all those who put the the penalty of sin for all those who put their faith in Christ. Let's rejoice in that today. And you know how sometimes you need someone just to say, I love you? God just said he loved you. You didn't need to hear that. In your relationships, you need to tell each other you, you love each other. I, as your pastor, we as a pastoral team need to let you know that we love you. Daughters need to tell their dads they love them. Wives need to tell their husbands they love them. Brothers need to tell sisters they love them. Friends need to tell each other they love them and how thankful we you are for everyone in your life. And God said a big I love you when he died on the cross for us. And his Holy Spirit bears witness of that every day in our heart. Leave here today being secure that you are loved by God, that the work is finished, that God is awesome. Amen.